Well, again, good morning and welcome to One Life Community Church. My name is Greg. I'm one of the co-lead pastors here, and it is, as always, a delight to see all of you here. Thank you for taking time to join us and for everyone who's listening online or who will be listening uh, to a podcast later on in the week. Uh, welcome to all of you also. Uh, for everyone who is present here in any kind of way, your presence and participation is critical to the work that God's doing in this world, and so we thank you for, for honoring that and being here. Uh, will you please join me as I pray? Dear God, I give you great thanks for uh, this day and for your presence uh, in our lives. I pray that as we uh, are present in some way or another at this time or later in the week as we're hearing this, that you would speak to us as a gathered people, um, that we would hear the message you have for us today that, that can only be spoken in a way that we can hear when we are together. There's something different about that when we're participating uh, together in something. So I pray you would unite us. I pray that we would be knit more together as a part of your body, um, that we would be able to better carry out your will in this world. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are in between sermon series, and it's not often that we have these moments where we have kind of a a one-time sermon that we're going to give in between two series, but uh, it just worked out that way. But, but what we're going to talk about today, it's, it's actually very fitting. It fits very well in between the two series. The one we just finished was called Worth the Risk, where we looked at uh, the reality that any commitment we make has an inherent risk to it. Uh, and then along with that, we asked the question, is it, is it worth it then? Right? Is, is it worth it then with that risk to, to commit to certain things? And so we looked at what it means to commit to our relationship with God and to, to commit to friendships, marriages, families, and then to the church. And, and so we're just coming out of that, but we're heading into this season of Lent where we're going to be exploring, uh, as Rich mentioned in the announcements, these moments where Jesus is at the table with people and how that, uh, those interactions reveal who Jesus is and what that tells us about what the kingdom of God is like. Um, and one of the things that uh, comes out of that that we'll explore more is that no matter what uh, race, gender, belief system, economic status, family size, station in life, place on the corporate ladder, what kind of grades in school we got, star on the team, star on the play, first chair of our instrument, etc., 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 no matter what, we all need to eat. Uh, and so Jesus often uses the table as a place to, to, to kind of level the playing field where everyone comes together on equal grounds around the reality that we all have to eat. And so it's one of the places where Jesus brings together people who often don't hang out together. Um, and, and it's amazing to see what happens in those spaces. Uh, but it's also one of the places where Jesus shows his care and his heart for the poor. And so today we're going to be talking about what it means to tithe into poverty. And simply put, it's giving to the poor. But, but we decided not to call it giving to the poor because this idea of tithing has a different connotation to it that we're going to explore uh, today, And I think we're going to find that God has something in mind uh, other than just simply giving to the poor. Now, many of us have some kind of reaction or response when we hear the word tithe. Sometimes we feel guilt. Sometimes it's a feeling of, can we please talk about anything else? Some of you may take a moment to go to the bathroom and then just hang out in the foyer uh, while you're <laughs> trying to figure out what's happening. Um, but we often feel that when tithing comes up, we're going to get some kind of sales pitch to support the church. We're going to feel guilty because we're going to be told we're not doing it enough, and et cetera, et cetera. And, and that's not what we're going to do today. Um, hopefully, we're going to, again, find something different. Um, because what it is really is, is it's an invitation uh, uh, from God to participate in a different way. 
Uh, now, but what do we mean when we talk about tithing into poverty? Well, tithing, let's start with that. As many see it, it's just giving money to the church. The church needs money to operate, to, to pay the staff, to, to keep up the building, to pay for ministries and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and so for some, it's a purely economic uh, exchange. We give money and money makes things happen. But in the Bible, it's seen as an act of worship. It's an offering to God to express thanks. And throughout the Old and New Testaments, there are all kinds of examples of God's people tithing, that God exhorts the Israelites into this ritual, this rhythm, this practice of tithing. And Jesus affirms it, and the early church practiced some form of giving that reflected this tithing pattern that many of them were already accustomed to. Now, even, and even though there are many Christians today who would say, because of Jesus coming and establishing a new covenant, that we're no longer under the old covenant. And so the, the pattern or the command to tithe in this amount, we might not be under that. But I think if we look at Scripture, we find evidence that Jesus and his followers have a posture oriented towards God that reflects stewardship with everything we have been given. This guy named Tom, Thomas Schreiner, he said this, he said, we are commanded to support those who preach the gospel, Matthew 10.10, 10, Luke 10.7, 10, uh, 1 Corinthians 9.6-14, and 1 Timothy 5.17-18. I encourage you, whenever you see verses thrown up like this, that they're not listed, write those down and go check those in your own study um, uh, and go on. Uh, and, and while we should enjoy the good things God gives us, we are also called to be generous to those in need, 1 Timothy 6.17-19 and 2 Corinthians 8, uh, chapters 8 and 9. Uh, wealth can so easily become an idol, leading us to abandon the Lord. Since God is to be our treasure, believers are to give generously and freely. For many in the West, this means giving more than 10%. Now, uh, the 10%, what is that about? The 10% is, there's a, a tradition and a belief that that's what Israel was invited to give, was 10% of, of all they had, their offering, or their, their crops and their, their wealth and all that kind of stuff. And so some believe that that's what Christians are supposed to give. There's a 10%, so that's where we get that number. Uh, but uh, what we can see from this uh, man's statement, who doesn't believe that we're under the, the old covenant, so doesn't believe we have to tithe a certain amount, but what he's saying is that uh, the invitation of Scripture as a whole uh, is to give even more. Uh, and if we're looking at the national average taken over the last several years, American churchgoers are tithing and donating about 2%. Uh, so, so we're under uh, even what what the Old Testament says, whether we believe we're under that or not. So, whether you believe the Old Testament structure of tithing is still relevant today, or we're still somehow tied to that or not, uh, the posture of God's people throughout history has been one of giving to others in need. In fact, the only time Jesus excuses us from not giving to the poor is a moment we find shows up in three out of the four Gospels. Uh, it's in um, Mark 26, 11, Mark 14, 7, and John 12, 8, where there's uh, woman, Jesus at this dinner gathering, this woman pours some really expensive oil over his head, and the disciples get really upset and say, well, why did you do that, right? We could have taken that, sold it in the market, and given the money to the poor. And Jesus says, this woman has anointed me, she's prepared me for burial, and then he follows it with this statement, that the poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me, meaning you will not always be in my physical presence in this way and be able to do this. And so the only biblical reason we're given by Jesus to not give is when we're physically in his presence. And from what I understand, that won't happen until we die or he comes back. And so the, the, the drive there is to say that until he comes back or until we die, the, the posture we are to have is to give generously to those in need. 
Now, the other thing about tithing that I want us to know is that it's a consistent pattern. It's a rhythm or it's a practice. And so we talk about tithing into poverty. What we're talking about is do we have a rhythm or a practice that's consistent of giving to the poor? Now, there are some things that get in the way of of what it means uh, to give to the poor. And and one of those is how we think about the poor. Uh, And Verlin Fosner, uh, you may have remembered, he came and spoke here a while ago, helped us start a community dinner site, which I'm going to talk about in a little bit. Um, has noted that there's a disturbing trend among the American church of blaming the poor for their condition. And he cites uh, two people, Margaret Polema and John Green, that did some research specifically within the Assemblies of God uh, and their church members and found out some of the attitudes that uh, current church members have towards the poor. And they are these. One, that some people in the church and the Assemblies of God believe that the poor and homeless are reaping what they have sowed, meaning they have made their beds, so let them lie in them. They feel that they cannot truly love a person who does not show gratitude. So and if that person can't respond with thanks and some kind of effort towards them, that they feel they can't truly love that person. Uh, they simply cannot understand how anyone could be homeless uh, and that they feel the poor do not deserve help unless they try to help themselves. That there's no reason to give unless, uh, and, and they can't really help unless that person's willing to take that and do something to try to improve their status and, and how they're doing. Now, these beliefs and feelings and attitudes um, uh, lead many of us to say that, again, that the poor deserve the station they're in and that uh, we're not going to give to certain populations among the poor without a certainty that they're going to take what we've uh, given them and use it in ways that we approve of or that that we uh, feel are right. Um, And we certainly want to see everyone get out of poverty But nowhere is it commanded or implied in the Bible that we should only give when what we give is going to be used in ways that we deem appropriate or that we should somehow make the recipient of what we're giving earn what we are giving them. That is not found anywhere in Scripture. Um, And so if we start with that, like, okay, so how do we even view the poor? And and we know that some of us and and, and the church uh, will often take this stance of maybe the poor uh, actually deserve where they're at. I want to look at a couple things that might cause us to reimagine our posture towards the poor and how we can act in that. Uh, The first thing I want to say is um, there are over 2,300 verses in the Bible that encourage us to respond to the poor. It's a lot. Usually when we get up here and give stats about how many times this word is used or something like that, we get excited if it's been like 30. 30 times this word is used in the Bible. That's a lot. There are 2,300 verses in the Bible that encourage us to respond somehow to the poor. And so we're going to look at all 2,300 of those this morning. Um, no, we're going to look at a couple, right? It would be awesome if we could. Uh, the first one is, is uh, what uh, I mentioned it before, Verlin Fosner calls God's plan for poverty that occurs in the Old Testament. And it starts in Deuteronomy 14. 28 and 29, where it says, At the end of every three years, bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your towns, so that the Levites, who have no allotment or inheritance of their own, and the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows who live in your towns, may come and eat and be satisfied, and so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. And so there was this seven-year rhythm, the seven-year cycle in Israel, the the, the last of that, the seventh year, was a Sabbath year. Uh, and it was also the year of Jubilee, where all debts were canceled, which is an awesome thing. Uh, but 
uh, within that, every third and sixth year, so every three years, this tithe offering that you were going to make would be taken and give to the spiritual leaders and to the marginalized. Now imagine if every three years you took your entire tithe for that year and gave it to the poor. Or maybe every third month or every third week or however you work out your tithing rhythm, your offering rhythm, what would that look like if we did that? Well, World Vision has estimated that the worst of the world's poverty could be solved with a price tag of $65 billion per year. They also noted that if all American churchgoers tithe beyond the 2% average that is currently tithed, they didn't say how much, but they just said beyond that, it would equal an increase of $168 billion. That increase is three times more than what is needed to solve the worst of the world's poverty. And it's remarkable to think if just the American church followed God's invitation to tithe into poverty, that the worst of the world's poverty could be eliminated, not to mention what could be accomplished when added with the rest of the world's tithe. Just that alone should be enough to get us rethinking. Okay, God put into place this plan to care for the poor. Are we continuing to do that? Even if we don't follow that same rhythm, it's obvious that it's God's heart. So are we following that? And again, there are tons of Old Testament verses we could go to. Uh, there's one in Proverbs that talks about, uh, I think it's Proverbs 16, where it says, if you are kind to the poor, if you give to the poor, you are lending to God, and he will pay you back. He will reward you. There's also Malachi, where it talks about the same offering, the same tithe, this every third year, and it says, if you do it and just, and just give, it's not enough. It's got to be with this concern for the poor, that if the heart's not there, doesn't mean what I intended. And Jesus actually gets on the Pharisees about that at one point when he's talking to them about this. And he says, you give your mint and your spices and all the stuff you're supposed to tithe, but you've lost mercy and justice. And those two need to be together. When well, speaking of Jesus, let's see how Jesus plays into this. We're going to not start in the Gospels. We're going to go back to 2 Corinthians, which feels like we've been doing all year because we had a great series in it earlier. But if we read uh, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Okay. That feels like it just got a little bit more real. That Paul says that this is what Jesus' entire life was about. His whole existence was this reality of he was rich, gave it up, became poor for someone else's sake, that through his poverty they might become rich. And if we are called to be followers of Jesus, to be his body in this world, then the pattern that is set for us, the, the one of becoming poor for the sake of others who are poor in order that they may become rich, that's the path we're on. It's a path of sacrificial giving, sacrificially giving up the things. Jesus sacrificially gave up the things that made him rich in order that others could become rich. So he became poor so that others could become rich. People who were his enemies, people who crucified him, friends who betrayed him, those are the kind of people he was moving towards. So again, even if you believe that we're no longer under the law of the Old Testament and therefore we don't have to tithe, Jesus does what he usually does and says, yeah, that thing that you thought that was so difficult that you now no longer have to do, that's fine. You don't have to do it. I'm just going to increase it. 
right? Sure, I don't require you to take your tithe from every third year and give a special tithe to the poor. I just require you to give to the poor until you're poor, right? I'm going to take it, and he does this so often. So then we begin thinking, okay, what does that even mean? How do I give until I'm poor, and then I give, and then I'm poor? Yeah, but then someone else is going to give to you, right? That's how it's supposed to work. Okay, there's a couple things that come into place in terms of us thinking about what it means to give. The first one that I often hear is that I don't feel like I have anything to give. And there's a story that occurs in all four Gospels, and it's the feeding of the 5,000. And, and I want to ask before we dive into it a little more, is if there's anyone here who can remember part of that story, would you be willing? I'd like to see if we can, as a group, tell the story. If you remember the feeding of the 5,000, any details about it, just go ahead and start saying those out, and we'll see what we come up with. Five loaves? Yeah. Yes, the little boy. I'm so glad you said that because sometimes we often just say the boy, but the Greek word is for little boy, and that changes how it is. So we got little boy, we got five loaves. What else? People were hungry, and we got fish. Too far for them to walk, right? They couldn't get back home, right? Okay. Oh, skadoosh. Yeah, he did, didn't he? Jesus challenged them to come up with something. Okay? Anything else? Right. Right. Right? Because 5,000, how do you deal with that, right? So he, yeah, awesome. Okay, someone else had something. There are lots of leftovers. Yep. He broke the bread and gave thanks. This is the best sermon ever. You guys are preaching so awesome. Anything else? Yeah. Right, right. They'd been hanging out there for a while with him and enduring a lot. And it was too late in the day, right? So he wanted to help them out. Yeah, here and then here. Leftovers. leftovers. Yep, awesome. I think the disciples had just been sent out. Yes. Right. Yeah, yeah. And even in that, Jesus tells his disciples, hey, let's go somewhere where we can be alone and hang out together and have some just you and us time, and then 5,000 plus other people show up, right? So there's that whole piece. Okay, yeah. 5,000 men, right? Plus their families and stuff, right? So there's... <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> You might not know that, right? It might not be your gift. Maybe that's why they have someone else who's the treasurer, right? Yeah, yeah. So all of this is awesome. Thank you so very much. And you touched on a lot of the things that, that, as I was thinking about this, came to my mind. One of them is that this little boy, right? This is not just a boy. It's a little boy. And so you have a little kid. And the, the meal that he brings, we brought up bread and fish. The, in one of the Gospels, it says it was barley bread. And there's this uh, Jewish philosopher named Philo. And Philo says this of barley bread. As foodstuff, it is of somewhat doubtful merit, suited for irrational animals and men in unhappy circumstances. So he's saying it's awful, right? And people tie in that the fish was there to probably make the bread taste like something you would want to eat, right? And so um, there's this idea that you have this little kid with the lunch that nobody wants, right? And, and Andrew brings this kid to Jesus and says, here's what we got. And Jesus says, awesome, 
Let's take and make something happen with this. And so there's this idea in this that you may not think you have enough. You may not think you have anything to offer. I guarantee you that boy, little boy, if, if this is even, he was able to even put these thoughts together, was not thinking, this is going to feed everybody, right? This is enough to feed everyone. And will they even like it? But I want you to know, don't let anyone, even yourself, make you believe that you have nothing of value to offer. Everyone has something to contribute and to believe that you have nothing to offer or to press that belief on someone else that they have nothing to offer is to take away dignity from them. It's dehumanizing. You may not have money, but maybe you have time. Maybe you don't have that, but you have some skill or resource you can give. The invitation of Christ is that we follow him is to give even out of something we don't feel like we have enough of. I guarantee you, if you ask that little boy, do you think your lunch is enough to feed all these people that you probably can't even see where it ends? Probably would have said no. But Jesus says it's absolutely enough. It's absolutely enough. And it's enough to have leftovers. How many of you have ever had a moment where you know there's a friend of yours in need or a family member and you walk into their presence knowing, I don't have what you need. I don't have it. I don't have the words to say. I don't have anything to give you that's going to make what you're dealing with, the pain or whatever. I don't have what it takes to give that away, to, to, to take that away. And yet you go and you offer your presence and you're there and somewhere down the road, maybe not in that moment, they tell you, just you being there was, was amazing. I came and I gave what I had, knowing it's not enough. And yet, Jesus does something in those spaces and says, it is enough. It wasn't your great strength. It was simply your faithfulness to help, maybe even out of your own poverty. So don't ever believe that you don't have something. Secondly, um, there's another story, uh, the, the parable of the the Good Samaritan. And I want to do the same thing. I want to see if we can retell that story. So if you know anything about the parable of the Good Samaritan, let's just start speaking those things out. Man was robbed. Yes. Yes, we got a man who's robbed left to die. On his way to Jericho, right? Yep. Awesome. Right people who we, when we think about this in the original audience would have heard it, said, oh, that person should have stopped, right? There was like a, a rabbi and was, right, these people who should have came by and should have been, oh, I'll give you this. We're like, mm, I don't have time. I got to get going. I got, right? They passed him by. Yep. <laughs> right? Kind of, I'm going to go to this side of the street and not, not deal with that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that there was a way that for him, he's believing, yep, I can't touch that. It's unclean, so i got to go around, right? And so that comes into play. Other things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was beaten and left on the side of the road. Unexpected hero, right? Who stops? Samaritan. And why is, why is that an unexpected hero? Yeah. Yeah, this is not a person who anything good can come out of, right? We are at odds, greater than at odds. We have a strong dislike and hatred for, right? Anything else? Yeah. 
covers all the costs, not just to, to help him and to, to leave him sitting on the side of the road better, but to get him into some place and say, put this on my tab. Yeah. Anything else? Okay. So with this, um, when I was in college, uh, I went on this uh, student spring impact mission where we went to other college campuses and helped a, a campus ministry there to do evangelism and all this kind of stuff. And we did street drama, which was awesome because I got to wear makeup and act like a pro wrestler, which was always my dream. Um, but we did this skit called The Parable of the Punk Rocker, right, which was right up my alley. And so I could run around and I got to yell things like, I am the leader of the dregs and I hate you because I am a dreg and I got to ah, stick my tongue out and stuff. It was so much fun. But then, as the story goes, I help out this person who's in need, and so it's you know, kind of playing on the idea that most people hate punk rockers and all this kind of stuff. They don't expect good to come out of them. But at the end of this, there's this question, because one of the questions throughout this parable is, who is my neighbor, right? That Jesus, uh, this person is asking Jesus, like, well, what do I have to do to, to, to inherit eternal life? And he's like, well, why don't you tell me? And the guy says, well, I gotta love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love my neighbors myself. And Jesus says, Yep, that's exactly it. You know, and so this question comes up. The guy says, tries to justify himself and asks, well, who is my neighbor? Right? And Jesus tells this story. And at the end of the story, he asks the, the person, so you tell me, who is the neighbor to this person who was left on the side of the road to die? Who's the neighbor in this story? He says, well, the one who cared for him. And Jesus says, yep, you got it. And so, but in the, the parable of the good punk rocker, what they did at the end is said, who's your neighbor? And we shouted, everyone. Right? And that's in there for sure. Right? That everyone is our neighbor. We're supposed to treat everyone this way. But when I say everyone, it leaves me with this endless pool of options that I can't really pick from. We've been talking about this in our Worth the Risk series that just because we have more options doesn't mean we know how to make better decisions. Right? And so I've got this pool that says everyone, and now I'm like, well, I could help them, or I could help them, or maybe them. And all of a sudden, I become kind of this consumer of who I want to help. And what I end up doing is saying, well, I'm going to help someone that it's kind of easy for me to help. I don't have to do too much. It's not going to feel too bad. Uh, and, it, and, and it just doesn't seem to be that easy to pick. And so I end up being stifled and shut down, and I come up with all these reasons. And just like this person in the story, I try to justify them by saying, well, are they really my neighbor? I mean, technically, I don't really know. Maybe they're... But the arc of the story is that the one who was my neighbor, the one who reached out and cared, was he cared for the person who was on their path, right? So I want to ask you then, who are the people on your path who need help, right? Instead of seeing it as the whole world needs my help, just who are the people on your path? Who are the people on the bus that you take to work? Who are the people that, that you see in the grocery store? Who are, who are your actual live next door to you kind of neighbors? Because I find when you start looking at it, it, you don't have to look far for people who need help. We all need help. So who are the people that are on your path that are in need? It could be your family or friends, right? It could be the, the person that we drive by on the on-ramp, the on, on the freeway. Who are the people as you go through your day that you see? And, the, and then do you have eyes to see them? And I want to let you know, like, if you, I'm not saying you can't read a book on the bus or you can't, you know, uh, you know, be checking something on your phone. But before you do that, I want to challenge you to take just 30 seconds. Take a deep breath before you pull that book out on the bus or wherever and just look around. Lord, is there anyone around me who needs help? Right? And you can just see. Right? And if it doesn't come up, then awesome. Read your book and have a great, great drive. But you might be surprised at what what the Lord shows you in that. 
as we kind of wrap some things up here, um, God has a plan to end poverty. It's going to fully happen when Jesus comes back. We enter into a time of no pain, no sorrow, no shame. But until then, we are invited to follow Jesus into a practice of giving to the poor, a rhythm of giving to those around us in need. Throughout different times in history, the church has been a great agent of social change. But for many today, the church is more inwardly focused on its own comfort than on its following Jesus in this posture of giving into poverty, even to our own poverty. And as a church, we've begun to take steps in this that I feel really good about. We started a tutoring ministry five years ago uh, that, that is meeting a need of kids who are struggling in school. But we found that many of those students and their families have other needs that we're also able to meet, including poverty. We've partnered with HIP, the Hunger Intervention Program, to help ensure that kids have enough food, not just to get through school, but so they can thrive in school and thrive in life. And we've planted a community dinner site in, uh, down in Magnuson Park that provides a weekly meal to people uh, who we've had the privilege of serving. But just as important, if not more importantly, we've had the privilege of getting to know and grow and learn together with. And those are great things, amazing, blessed things of God. But I'm also aware that these things are things that, that, that we've kind of built that we can enter into on our terms. We can go and participate in them, and that's fine. But my concern, as we continue to grow, is when will this place, our space, be a place where everyone is welcome to be present with us, not on our terms? When will our church be a place where people of all races, sexual orientations, genders, and in this case, economic status, when will it be a place where they will feel welcome to come and experience God on equal footing? Because sometimes we make it so they can't even get in the door. When will it be that they won't be seen as different in a negative way, but in a way that says, we invite you to come and experience God with us in a way that actually informs all of us? I want to end with a quick story about a friend of mine who's a missionary in Kenya, and he uh, and this other friend of his built this village. They, they, they somehow acquired 150-some acres and built this village that, that, that is a lot like the Kenyan villages surrounding it, and, uh, and it's, it's cool because it doesn't look like a doesn't look or feel like Disneyland or something like that. It feels like the villages around it, so they're staying within the, the boundaries of the culture that's already there. Uh, and one Sunday, a person from another village came and for their offering gave a chicken because they didn't have money and they didn't really have anything else. And they kind of said, well, this is what I have. Here's this chicken. And my friend was like, well, we have seven chickens, uh, so that's awesome. We're kind of using them to teach the kids in the schools about, you know, here's how you raise and care for animals and, and all that kind of stuff. And so... They just put the chicken in with the other seven chickens. Now, they knew it was a rooster and that the other seven were, were laying, egg-laying hens, uh, but he just didn't think it through very much. And so um, a little while later, someone came and said, so we're not getting as many eggs, um, but we have a lot more chickens all of a sudden. Uh, and so he was like, oh, well, we should separate that rooster out and put some of the chickens with that rooster because that seems like it could get some chickens, more chickens and we could lay some more eggs and this kind of stuff. We don't want to overdo it because, you know, we've got to make sure we manage the land right and we don't want to have them all jammed in or some stuff like that. But they found a way 
kind of this free-range way uh, that now they, they gather, I believe he said, about 1,000 eggs every day. Um, and then they have a bunch of chickens, and they take those eggs because they're plenty for all the people there. And so they take a bunch of extra eggs to the market. Um, people buy them. People buy chickens so that they can have their own chickens laying eggs and, and making more chickens that they can eat. Or, you know, and so they've, through this, one person's, I don't have anything to offer, but here's a chicken uh, offering, donation. They have provided a huge source of protein to the area, still working within the cultural settings of that space. So they haven't like set up a big manufacturing plant or anything. They've managed it really well. Um, and uh, they're also able to uh, use the money from that to build a new medical facility in their village and also a boarding school, uh, which again is really cool because uh, coming from, uh, he's from Portland and coming from Portland, he's like, we'll build a high school. And they said, no, you got to build a boarding school because that's how they do it in Kenya is they do boarding schools, not high schools. And he was like, yes, very good. I want to stay within those, within those means. But I share that story just to say uh, that... Um, this person did not think, and, and he even asked him, this person did not think that him giving this rooster would have that big of an impact on what they were doing. Yet, it totally did. And so I want to go back to this idea that um, you may think, and worship teams and prayer team, you could come up, uh, please. Uh, you might think that you don't have anything to offer, but you do. Every single person that is here and present has something that you can contribute uh, to help. And so, uh, again... Uh, please don't feel like you don't. I have a couple questions I want you to think about. Uh, the prayer team's up here. If you want to have something that you heard today, either in worship or our time uh, looking at the word, uh, that you want to be prayed for. Um, and then uh, the worship team is up here also. In just a second, uh, I'm going to ask some questions that if you could write down your answers on your connection card, put those in the wood boxes on your way out, that would be awesome. They're going to play instrumentally for a minute, give you time to respond, and then they'll invite us to participate through uh, singing. So the questions I have is one, do you have a rhythm or a practice of giving financially towards the poor? Why or why not? So if you do, then write yes and here's why. And if you don't, write no and here's why not. And then and that one's pretty simple. Uh, question number two, do you have a rhythm or practice of giving in other ways to the poor? If yes, what is it? So again, it might not be finances, but you might say, yeah, I give time helping out with tutoring or the community dinner. I help with the hip packing parties or something like that. Or you might have another area that's not connected with the church at all, which is awesome too, where you're giving to the poor. And so uh, in some form or fashion. So please write that down. And then uh, the last one is, are there things you can do right now, if, if you answered no to the ones above, that would be a start to a rhythm or a practice of giving to the poor in some way? And if you can think of that, what would it be? Uh, and so take a moment to write those things down. Uh, and I'm going to pray and then we'll continue in worship. Jesus, I... Uh, I this morning give you great thanks um, that you who were so rich uh, in ways that we can't even imagine um, gave that up and became poor so that we may experience what it means to be sons and daughters of the king. We may get to experience what it means to be brought in as family, as co-heirs with you. Jesus, I, I pray that we who have been given so much um, in that would, would find ways to share that with the world, not just in our words, but in our actions. That we would be people who give, even if we give until, I don't think I have anything left. And I pray that we would find that you're there providing 
that you're there keeping and sustaining and that someone would come along and, and help us out. So God, I pray we wouldn't be afraid to give and to give generously to the poor. And I pray you would help us all individually and as a church as we're here together to continue to find ways to put into practice that, that consistent rhythm of giving to the poor. God, thank you that that is your heart because it's what uh, led Jesus to come and, and meet us. And so I pray we would do that for the people in our lives too. And I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.